Welcome to the April 29th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Hopefully you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. First Kings chapter 6. The very first verse gives us some very helpful historical information. Let me read it to you. Verse 1. Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month. Okay, so allow me to quote from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, a commentary that I have enjoyed since the mid-90s, and... uh, It uh, speaks to this verse. Listen to what it says, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, This verse is one of the most important in the Old Testament chronologically because it enables us to fix certain dates in Israel's history. The dates of Solomon's reign have been quite definitely established through references in ancient writings. They were 971 B.C. to 931 B.C., According to this verse, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, in the fourth year of his reign, Solomon began to build the temple. That was 966 B.C. Therefore, the Exodus took place 480 years earlier, which was 1446 B.C. So, as I quoted from uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, um, they were clearly noting that we know when Solomon reigned. There's, there's ancient writings that, that very specifically tell us when he reigned. And so, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 lets us know how we can work backwards from those dates uh, to create other, to, to actually, to mathematically calculate other specific dates, uh, particularly when the Exodus took place. So, in verses 2 through 10, we read about the temple's dimensions and other relevant details. The temple's dimensions were 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. The front two-thirds of the temple formed the holy place where the priest would serve at the table of the bread of presence, the lampstand, and the altar of incense next to the veil. Behind the veil was the back one-third of the temple. The Holy of Holies was 30 foot by 30 foot, and it is the place where God remained among his people. If you are an architect, (laughs) a builder, or you're a visual person, then you really enjoy these sections of scriptures where the writers paint a picture with, uh, with his words regarding what this incredibly beautiful place of worship looks like. You may even want to have fun just kind of drawing out some dimensions. Uh, There's other places in Scripture that give even greater detail. In verses 11 through 13, the Lord steps into space and time and encourages Solomon, but Solomon's encouragement is conditional. If Solomon obeys God's word, then God will remain in the temple with his people. So it's a conditional promise. It's a conditional word of encouragement. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple uh, you are building, as for this temple you are building, if you walk in my statutes, there's the if, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them, 
And you could then imply that then, then I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. So as the years played out, God's presence would come and go at least a couple of times uh, there in the temple. Yet God showed up in a human body in the temple about a thousand years later. Jesus spent much time in the temple area, so God was actually in the temple area, not just the Holy of Holies. He was walking around in it. And Jesus, God in the flesh, spent much time in the temple area teaching and healing. God had shown back up to this place of worship after the 400 silent years between the book of Malachi and when Jesus was born. But just as 1 Kings 6 records God as saying, I will stay with you as long as you are obedient, we read in the Gospels that the Jewish leaders in particular did not recognize their Messiah, and they were not obedient from the heart to the Scriptures. In fact, they flat out rejected him, and they rejected his interpretation of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus uttered the following words as he was preparing to go to the cross. Listen, in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So this is the balance between God's sovereignty and mankind's free will. But listen to verse 38. Jesus says, See, your house is left to you desolate. That's Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. So what is Jerusalem's house? That's the temple. So I could put that word in there. See, your temple is left to you. The word is desolate. In the original language, in the Greek that this was written in, it's the Greek word eremos, which means uninhabited or deserted. So Jesus, as he was preparing to go to the cross and as he left the temple, he said, your temple, Jerusalem, is left to you empty. It's uninhabited. It's deserted. God will no longer reside in that temple. And then he says, verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we look forward to a time when Jesus will once again be back in a new, brand new temple that will be built at a future date. So if Jesus uttered these words in about 30 AD, because maybe he was born 4, 5, maybe as early as 6 BC, so if he uttered these words in about 30 AD, the temple would sit empty, void of God's presence for 40 more years. In 70 AD, the Roman commander Titus came in to ransack Jerusalem and completely dismantled the temple so that not one stone was left on top of another. God had permanently left the temple and the temple was destroyed. But... And we're kind of chasing a little bit of a rabbit, but this is important because God made that conditional promise to Solomon and the Jews did not fulfill their end of the bargain. And so God left the temple. But is there no temple anymore? Every now and then we hear someone, a well-intentioned Christian, maybe in a prayer, Lord, thank you that we have come into your house. You know, they're saying that in church, we've come into your house. Th that's not biblical language. 
That is, it's unbiblical language. It is completely foreign to anything the Bible teaches. Uh, This just once again shows how much that we have received and we kind of don't even think about because it's just been ingrained into our minds from pastors who didn't study God's word or Bible teachers who really didn't dig in and and strive for accuracy biblically. God God has no building house now. A, a church building is not God's house. It is not God's temple. When people say, Lord, we've come into your house today, that, that's, that's unbiblical. There, it, the building is not God's house. That is just a building. A church building is just a building. God actually dwelt physically in a very tangible way in the temple in the Old Testament, but he does not do that. God does not hang out in the church building while we're gone. He doesn't do that. The church building is not the Old Testament temple. So are we to say that there is no longer a temple, no longer a place where God hangs out and his people worship him? No, we cannot say that because we understand that when that temple was torn down for about 40 years before then, on the day of Pentecost, God's Holy Spirit came down, came down, and from that point on, he began to indwell every single person that trusts in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. And when the Holy Spirit goes inside of that person, actually indwells their body, lives within their body, friend, that means that our body is the house of God. Our physical body is the temple of God. The church building is not the temple. It's not the house of God. We need to stop saying that. It's not the house of God. Our body is the temple. Our body is the house of God. And uh, most of you would probably readily go right to the verse that I'm going to quote to you, but some may be saying, really, what's the scriptural basis? That's a very good question. We need to always be asking, what does the Bible say about this? So let me quote to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Okay? So just as God's presence dwelt in Solomon's temple, and then later Zerubbabel's temple, um, and he dwelt in the tabernacle that Moses set up, well, God doesn't dwell in buildings now. God dwells in bodies. He dwells in the body of those who are trust, who are trusting in him. Sorry, I had a little bit of a hiccup. So when we read this, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Because God's Holy Spirit is in your body, therefore you and I are to glorify God in our body. Our body is now the temple of God. That's why we're to glorify him in our body. That's why every moment of every single day should be an act of worship because our body is God's temple and he will never, ever leave it. So when we go to work, we're taking the house of worship with us. When we go to a restaurant, we're taking the house of worship with us. When we go to a place of entertainment, we are taking the house of worship with us. When we go into a building that the sign says the name of our church, when we go into that building, we don't go into the house of God. We take the house of God in with us because our body is the house of God. 
Friend, I'm telling you that if we fully embrace this, if we understand this, then we understand that there's nowhere we can go without our body. Therefore, there is nowhere we can go without being in the temple of God. Therefore, every single moment of our day needs to be an act of worship. Every single moment of our day needs to be an act of worship. And it also needs to inform us that whenever we're tempted to sin, tempted to disobey, that we're forcibly taking God's Holy Spirit with us into that act. Boy, that'll that's something to think about, isn't it? Well, as we get back to the text of 1 Corinthians 6, we observe that the temple continues to be prepared for worship. So much is done and explained in the biblical account. But there's one verse in particular that I want to draw our attention to. And it's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 19. It says, He prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to put the Ark of the Lord's Covenant there. He put the Ark of the Lord's Covenant there. So the Ark of the Covenant that Moses built was placed inside Solomon's temple. But as history plays out and we eventually approach the Babylonian invasion of Judah and the Jews are taken into captivity, we're not going to hear of the Ark again after that point. It's very doubtful that the Ark of the Covenant was ever in the temple that Zerubbabel rebuilt and that Herod kind of gave a facelift to. The temple that Jesus went into, it's very doubtful that the Ark of the Covenant was in that temple. It had been taken off somewhere, and who knows where it is now. Well, as this chapter ends with the following verses, um, it lets us know that it took seven years to build the temple. 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. The foundation, so that's the, the first part of the temple. you got to build that foundation first. The foundation of the Lord's temple was laid in Solomon's fourth year in the month of Ziv. In his eleventh year in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the temple was completed in every detail and according to every specification. So he built it in seven years. And I just want to let you know... <clears throat> It did not take seven years to build the temple because Solomon couldn't get workers or Solomon's workers were lazy and they were, you know, striving for, you know, to create a union so that they wouldn't have to work that much. No, I bet these guys were busy. They were busy. They were skilled. They were craftsmen. It took seven years because if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And this temple was a spectacular, beautiful, magnificent place that people from all over the world would come to view there in Jerusalem, Solomon's Temple. First Kings 7. Uh, in verses 1 through 14, we read the description of Solomon's palace complex. This is not the temple. This is his own personal palace. And this wasn't a hastily built house that was constructed in a matter of weeks or months. Instead, with all of the skilled workers at his disposal, we read in verse 1 that it took a very long time to build his palace. Listen to verse 1. Solomon completed his entire palace complex after his 13th year of construction. So this took quite a while. It's not because they're lazy. It's because if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And one of the principles we learn from Solomon's ambitious building projects is that if you want something done right, get the right people to lead the project, get the right people to work on that project. Get someone who is very, very skilled. 
Solomon just didn't get hired workers to rebuild the temple and the palace. He didn't just get anybody. He got Hiram of Tyre, who was incredibly gifted. 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says this. King Solomon had, um, had Hiram brought from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze craftsman. Hiram had great skill, understanding, and knowledge to do every kind of bronze work, so he came to King Solomon and carried out all his work. You know, there's a time and a place where we just do what needs to be done. It doesn't need skilled craftsmanship. It just needs to get done. It's not a big deal. But if we have self-respect, if we also have a love for the Lord and, and everything we do, we realize, the New Testament tells us, is to be done as unto the Lord, then we need to do most things. I'm not talking about, you know, some of the smaller details, but even then, maybe, you know, just be careful about what we're doing, but we need to make sure that everything we're doing is done well. Maybe it's a building project or it's a ministry or business that needs someone skilled to lead it or someone that's in it that can help out, that's skilled and that has a high degree. Uh, we need to realize that Christians should lead the way in doing things the right way. There is nothing worse. I think it tarnishes the gospel when people are in positions of ministry at church and they're apathetic at best and unskilled. Um, I mean, if somebody doesn't know how to sing then don't put them up in front of everybody and, and lead in a, a song or a solo on a Sunday morning. Um, it's, it's not a slam against them. It's just we're supposed to exer be exercising in our areas of giftedness. And if God hasn't gifted us in a certain area, then we ought not focus on that area. Um, you know, somebody that maybe can't sing, maybe they can lead, you know, maybe they can um, uh, do construction work. Maybe they uh, are great at volunteering and helping out in a, in a parachurch organization or something the church is doing. Find what you are good at and hone in on that. Ideally, the church, above all the businesses in its community, the church should be run better than any other place in the community. People who are skilled in areas should desire to grow in that area of, of giftedness and then use their gifts for the Lord. Use their gifts to serve the Lord through the ministry of the church and also, of course, outside the church as well. But oftentimes, you know, we're reading about Solomon and oftentimes um, churches are just pitifully run and it's just apathetic and people that are not gifted are put in positions where they're set up to fail and it's just horrible. Don't, don't let that be the case at your church. Uh, always be working toward um, putting people that are gifted in areas where they can best serve the Lord. Um, and also realize sometimes it takes time. You know, you don't, you also don't want to be offensive. You don't want to be abrasive. You don't want to run the church like a business because it's not. Um, and so sometimes people are in positions and uh, they're really not that good, and, and so you need to just take time kind of moving them out. You don't want to break their spirit. You don't want to hurt them, shame them. Um, but I'm just saying the goal, the ideal, what we're aiming at is a church that is well run um, because like Solomon, we're getting people that are skilled, finding out what areas they're skilled in and putting up to work in that area. Well, let's get back to the text. 
In verses 15 through 22, we read about the two bronze pillars that were built for the temple. Uh, These two pillars were massive. Both of them were 27 feet high and 18 feet in circumference. These pillars spoke of God's strength available to the nation of Israel as they obeyed him. And one of the things that we're going to see is, uh, I think if in my mind, just immediately right now, I didn't research it, but I think I can, I can think of two instances right now when a king of Israel, really king of Judah, um, I, I think Solomon is one of them, and then I think one is a king of Judah after the kingdom splits. Uh, they, they prepare to make a covenant um, to God, a promise to God to, to, um, to obey his word. Uh, and they want to make it clear that they are resolute uh, in this, and they also are showing their dependence upon the Lord's strength to enable them to, to accomplish it. What they're going to do is they're going to stand next to one of these pillars to symbolize their dependence on God's strength uh, to fulfill their duty. And so these pillars are going to come into play at least a couple of times uh, as we proceed in the historical books. In verses 23 through 26, the, the basin was constructed. Uh, this was corresponding to the laver that had been built for the tabernacle. And uh, this was the basin that contained water for the priests to regularly wash their hands in as they did their duty. So how big was this basin? I'm telling you, Solomon did everything. He did it big. It appears that it could hold about 12,000 gallons of water, this basin. Uh, if you're in a church that has a baptistry, I'm not talking about, you know, one of those movable, portable baptistries that's just put on the stage. I'm talking about one that's built in behind maybe the choir loft or behind the, the, the stage. Um, usually those baptistries can hold about 500 gallons of water. And so this basin that uh, Solomon built is roughly 24 baptistries. This is, this is big. In verses 27 through 37, he built a bronze water cart. Uh, in verses 38 through 40, he built a bronze basins and uh, you know other utensils. And in verses 40 through 47, Hiram completes the work of the things made of bronze. In verses 48 through 50, uh, we read of the furniture in the temple that was not made of bronze. It's made of gold. Uh, listen to these verses, verses 48 through 50. Solomon also made all the equipment in the Lord's temple, the gold altar. Okay, so Hiram is not doing this. He works with bronze. Um, This stuff is made of gold. And so uh, Hiram did not do this. It says Solomon also made the equipment in the Lord's temple, the gold altar, the gold table that the bread of presence was placed on, the pure gold lampstands in front of the inner sanctuary, five on the right, five on the left, the gold flowers, lamps, and tongs, the pure gold ceremonial bowls, wick tremors, sprinkling basins, ladles, and fire pans, and the gold hinges for the doors of the inner temple, that is, the most holy place, and for the doors of the temple sanctuary. I can only imagine how beautiful it was inside the temple with the lampstand providing the light against all of those golden items there inside the the holy place in the temple. Well, then we read in verse 51 that the temple was completed. It says this, So all the work King Solomon did in the Lord's temple was completed. Then Solomon brought in the consecrated things of his father David, the silver, the gold, the utensils, and put them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. So, the temple has been completed. 
Now it's time to dedicate it to the Lord and then begin using it in Israel's worship of the one true God. And we're going to read about that tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that even as we read about this temple, this beautiful temple, that the greatest, grandest temple in all of Israel's history was the one that Solomon built. Uh, Lord, as we see all that, uh, that was done to make this thing beautiful, Lord, we can't help as New Testament saints to reflect on the fact that the temple is no longer a building made of even gold and bronze and silver and all of the, the material that that was made of. The temple is now our bodies. Uh, Lord, among many other things, that means that we need to be taking care of our bodies physically. We need to be taking care of our bodies because our body is the temple of the God of all creation. Our body is the place where you show up so that we can worship you in our body. Um, Lord, so help us as we think about the application of this truth, help us to take care of our physical body. But Lord, even more importantly, as, as important as physical exercise and diet and just working on our general health, as important as that is, it is so much more important that we focus even much more so on our spiritual health. Lord, whenever we're thinking a bad thought, we're doing it in the temple where your Holy Spirit resides. When we're holding on to unforgiveness and anger and bitterness, we're doing that in the temple where your Spirit resides. When we go somewhere we shouldn't go, when we say something we shouldn't say, when we, any number of possibilities of, of how we sin, when we look at something we shouldn't look at, um, when we envy um, any number of these things, when we do this, we do this in the temple that your Holy Spirit resides in. Father, help us to realize that we are taking your Holy Spirit, your Spirit within us, who is given to us to enable us to make good on your desire for us to become more and more and more holy, more and more and more like Jesus. And yet when we sin, we take him off into those things. Lord Jesus, forgive us and help us to feel the weight of pursuing holiness and inviting your Holy Spirit into that journey as he empowers us to do that. Uh, Lord, help us to think on these thoughts throughout this day um, and look for ways that we can apply these truths to our thinking, to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are uh, finishing up with episode 119 this year, and episode 121 is a third of the way through. So we've only got two more episodes, and we're a third of the way through the Bible. I just want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. Don't give up, and even consider inviting some others. If you are enjoying this, if this is helpful to you, consider enjoying inviting others. Uh, maybe even uh, sharing this episode, whether you've got it on Spotify or Google Podcast or Apple Podcast or maybe you listen to it on Anchor. I mean, I, I'm, 
I see on the data that it's listened to on a lot of different platforms. Um, then share that to social media and, and be specific about why it is that you think this is helpful. Um, but I just want to thank you all for joining me on this journey. Um, it is fun. It's enjoyable. I hope you stick it out and we get to cross the finish line together on December the 31st. Well, I do hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.